Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, September the 27th, 2022. It's been a bad month, I think, in economic terms. The market's stabilized a little bit today, but they've been on the slide profoundly. And if you're living in the UK with the collapse of the pound, things are particularly bad. We are talking economics today and particularly um, the economics or perhaps the philosophy of interest and of debt. Uh, I've done a number of shows on it. We did one with um, uh, a politician, uh, Massachusetts, uh, actually a Pennsylvania uh, politician, Richard Vague who has a new book out arguing the case for a debt jubilee. We did one a couple of weeks ago with the distinguished economic historian Edward Chancellor, the real history of interest, um, which he entitles The Price of Time. Very important and interesting new book. Really particularly enjoyed talking with, uh, uh, with Edward Chancellor. Uh, and also uh, last uh, February... An interesting conversation with Christopher Leonard, a distinguished economics journalist in the U.S., arguing, uh, and this is from his book, a very successful book, The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy, arguing, like Chancellor, that quantitative easing, that low interest rates actually imperil the U.S. economy. We are back with interest and uh, interest rates and the idea of debt and what it means in sociological and political terms. With my guest today, a professor at uh, Northwestern University just outside Chicago, he has a new book out, The Economy of Promises, Trust, Power and Credit in America. And uh, I'm thrilled that Bruce Carruthers is joining us now. Bruce, your book focuses on America. Uh, is there something unique about the history of interest, of promises in the American economy, or might it apply globally? Well, I think many of the things that happened in the United States do apply globally, uh, largely because over the period that I study, which is uh, predominantly the 19th and 20th centuries, you know, the U.S. became a global power. And so the institutions that were forged in the United States that were invented here uh, got global traction and eventually simply because you know New York became the you know the center of, of global capitalism, uh, those institutions uh, got exported and they were adopted and they came to assume global importance. So in that sense, uh, you know the American story becomes a global story uh, just with the passage of time and the, and the changing role of, of the United States. Uh, but but certainly my, my focus is on the United States and what happened here and I say that because uh, that's that's physically where I am. Um, you know, the 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 extension of credit, uh, the availability availability of debt. Uh, these are all things, of course, that that have happened. You know, all over the world uh, since market economies first got going millennia ago. Um, but I would say that there were some features of the United States that were quite distinctive uh, that weren't developed elsewhere although people were tackling similar problems of deciding, you know, who to lend money to, whom to trust. Um, and, and, but they were solved in different kinds of ways. And what happened in, in the U.S., as I recount in, in the book, 
uh, is starting in the middle of the 19th century, uh, people really developed a new way of evaluating the trustworthiness of uh, debtors. And Bruce, that, would it be yes. fair to say that um, America, of course, is the model, not always a working model for democracy. Tocqueville came here in the middle of the 19th century, wrote his great book on democracy. Um, couldn't we talk in America, in the American context about the democratization of, of, of debt, of credit? I assume that debt was always available throughout history, but it's been democratized so that we can all have it. We all, or most of us, carry credit cards around in our pockets and we, we owe stuff rather than pay cash on it. That's true, um, but I think the term democratization should be used with care. You know, it's it's a nice idea. It sounds good. You know. Yeah, I'm using it with care. I'm ambivalent yeah. about the term. It's not. It's not a term of, from, in my mind, of endearment, really. So. Huh. Well, so I the 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 caveat that I would add to that is democratization certainly signals inclusivity, but it also signals equality. You know, the basis of, of a democracy is it's one person, one vote. And the thing that we know about credit is that even when it's widely available to almost everyone, uh, the terms under which it's available and the amounts in which it's extended are highly unequal. And that's how the system works. It doesn't give loans to everyone. Everyone doesn't get equal amounts of money uh, in terms of credit. It to some, it gives uh, a lot, and to others, uh, it gives very little or maybe none at all, or it prices it at a very high level. And so uh, that inequality, which is very much a feature of credit uh, credit markets, um, is is sort of uh, overlooked when we use a term like global, or excuse me, uh, the democracy of credit or or uh, democratization of credit. So I'm, I also am a, a little ambivalent about that term because I think it it can be quite misleading. And yeah, just... I mean, it's used to sell products, ideas, ideologies. It's yep. a seductive term. We did a, a show with the Berkeley uh, economist, I'm sure you're familiar with his work, Brad DeLong, uh, mm -hmm. an economic history of the world of the 20th century, which he dates from the 18, from 1860, from the mid 1860s up until 2010. The book is called Slouching Towards utopia. And what DeLong argues in his book is one of the defining features of the economic history of the 20th century, particularly the second half of the 20th century, is inequality. Have you found that? Is that what you conclude in some ways in your economy of promises, a history of credit in America, that it's defined by inequality? I would... Again, I'm, I'm going to quibble a little bit. I would say it is marked by inequality. I'm not sure if it's defined by inequality. Uh, um, but I think uh, DeLong is absolutely right. That is one of the you know, great facts of the 20th century, of, of, of 20th century economic history, is the emergence of inequality, its articulation, and all the ways in which uh, we wrestle with it. And certainly, uh, you know, some of the... the um, uh, periods that are uh, covered by my book include, uh, you know, much of the political mobilization that happened in the United States in the 1960s and the 1970s, where uh, people really brought into the political sphere at the federal level, the realization that credit markets uh, discriminated against women and discriminated against minorities. So those were... Uh, uh, surprise, two... surprise, Bruce. I mean, yeah, that's right. true so, in every aspect of 
economic, cultural, political life in America. Sure. But rather than just be, you know, lackadaisical about it, people were trying to solve that problem. And so legislation was passed. So rather than viewing inequality as kind of an inevitability that will show up in every um, uh, venue uh, or relationship possible, you know, people did try to address it. Uh, so in that sense, you know, some of the events that happened in the 20th century are certainly about how American politics uh, wrestles with uh, inequality. And of course, you know, wrestling with debt politically, that's an old story in America as well, because going back into the 19th century, if you look at the you know, monetary reform movements of the populists and the free silver movement, uh, the mobilization of agrarian interests. I mean, farmers were mad as hell about the debt that they had to uh, um, uh, assume in order to be functional farmers. Uh, and the controversies that surrounded bankruptcy laws where people discharged their debts en masse, those also were very much motivated by uh, people's appreciation that debt is a political issue as well as a, uh, an economic one. I love the title of the book, Bruce, um, The Economy of Promises. Um, there's a lot of money in, 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 in promises. There's a lot of money in credit. Who, who made the great fortunes? Is it the traditional bankers of the 19th century? Are many of the, the great banks, the, the Chase Manhattans, the Rothschilds, we've covered some of them, the Morgenthau's, we, we dealt with them uh, a book about them last week. Is much of the financial wealth of American elites built on the economy of promise? Absolutely. So if you look at um, the evolution of household balance sheets, what you'll find in very broad brush strokes is that, you know, wealth in the early 19th century consisted chiefly of tangible assets, you know, land, the one of the oldest forms of property we know. And over time, the balance between tangible and intangible or between non-financial and financial assets has really shifted very dramatically. And so when we think of the elites, you know, the titans of finance, the people that have accumulated a great deal of wealth, uh, certainly most of that, it's not tied up in their mega mansions. It's not tied up in their luxury automobiles. It's tied up in their portfolios of financial assets. So very much so uh, the, the economy of promises uh, and the distribution of promises uh, has kind of factored into what it is the, the very elites are, are holding and owning and, and how they claim value. It's, it's predominantly in those intangible assets. But you know- Chris, uh, Yeah, I did, I'm not sure I articulated the question very well. What I meant was um, in terms of your, your new book, The Economy of Promises, is that fortunes were made out of lending. Mm -hmm. I mean, isn't much, much of the American financial wealth is rooted in this credit revolution, isn't it? Yeah. But, you know, we want to, again, think more broadly about what is a loan, because a lot of credit, uh, you know, when we think of a loan, we think, you know, someone goes down to the bank and they sit across the desk from a lending officer, you know, and they borrow $20,000 or something like that, you know, and it's an, it, it sits on the balance sheet of the bank and so forth. But a lot of credit uh, is extended in, in kind of a lower profile way through things like uh, retail credit. So, you know, a lot of people in rural areas in the 19th century would run a tab at their local county store. Uh, you know, if you were a farmer, 
you'd, uh, you'd, you'd borrow money because you were constantly buying supplies and food for your family, uh, but you didn't have any income until you harvested your crops at, in the fall. And so a lot of people kind of ran a tab, uh, that is they, they, they uh, received credit from, a, from the local store for much of the year and then paid their debts off in the fall. And, and that's not going to a, you know, a loan officer at a bank, but that's credit that helped sustain rural populations uh, through the, through the uh, cycle of the year. And uh, similarly, trade credit kind of works that way. If, if you were a supplier and you were shipping goods to some company in the Midwest, then you, know, you would ship them the goods and they would pay um, on terms that would be 60 days or 90 days. And it's not exactly an explicit loan, but it's a form of credit that helps uh, you know, businesses uh, do their business because uh, it would be very hard for businesses to uh, operate strictly on a cash basis. So when we think about uh, credit, certainly uh, the centerpiece, the most obvious example is, is exactly what you put your finger on. It's a bank, uh, a financial institution making a loan uh, to someone. But one of the things that is uh, certainly true is that, is, is that credit is dispersed and, and distributed in lots of other ways uh, that are perhaps more pervasive, that are perhaps a little uh, a little less high profile, uh, but they are uh, critical nevertheless to the functioning of the overall economy. Bruce, uh, you are a professor of sociology, not of economics at, uh, at Northwestern uh, University. And, and the book itself is as much sociological or written from a sociological as opposed to an, an economics uh, perspective. How did the shift from what you call this physical, tangible economy to the economy of promise, a sort of a, a metaphysical or an intangible quality, how do you think that changed America more broadly? How did that change how we think about money, each other, and society? Did it have a profound change, Jimmy? I think it did. Uh, you know, partly because we inherited a set of ideas that, uh, it, and, and, and I mean, these were ideas, not just mentalities, not just ideas in people's heads, but ideas that were inscribed in our, our legal institutions, our, our social institutions. But we inherited a bunch of ideas about wealth and accumulation that were really calibrated and based on tangible things. You know, when we think about property rights, we think about you know, the physical things that we own. Um, and as we moved into a world where so much value existed in promises and existed in intangibles, uh, we've had to update uh, and, and modify and, and change our uh, fundamental conceptualizations because uh, it's a very different thing to violate the property rights that somebody has over intangible wealth. You know, what, what, what constitutes trespassing when somebody has a piece of land versus when somebody has, you know, some other intangible wealth, those are two quite different things. And yet we've, we've taken the notion of trespassing and the violation of property rights, and we've tried to bring it into the 21st century. Uh, and that uh, change, that uh, updating, opens a huge can of worms. And so that's why, you know, a lot of the interesting uh, disputes that are going on now um, about things like intellectual property or other forms of, of uh, intangible property. These are really hot areas of dispute because we didn't really inherit a system uh, that, that well accommodated them. And 
the other thing is that you know tangible wealth has got a kind of legitimacy that intangible wealth does not. I mean, people I think are suspicious. Uh, uh, intangible wealth appears to be ephemeral. Uh, it's unreliable, it's unstable, it's a, a kind of a crazy thing to them. Uh, unlike, you know, good solid things like a piece of land or, you know, a herd of cattle or your, your, your physical family home. And so socially, the meaning of wealth I think has changed and, and people's attitudes toward it have changed. And the mobility of intangible wealth opens up a bunch of uh, strategies uh, that that uh, you know people use to preserve their wealth. So you know it's it's easy to offshore financial wealth. You know you just open a bank account somewhere in the Cayman Islands and or set up. Uh, yeah, you know, we've done many uh, many shows on dirty money. But uh, uh, Bruce, um, yep, America in the nineteenth century in particular, but throughout its history has been a deeply religious society, more religious probably than, than other developed or developing countries. Marx in the 19th century wrote his great work on money, thus capital, turning, imagining money in metaphysical terms. To what extent in terms of your history of credit, uh, the economy of promises in your study, did you see this meshing, this merging of religion and economics? Of course, many sociologists from Marx through Weber have been intrigued by the relationship. What did you see in your study? So again, I think, you know, you, you know, someone else that I would quote is uh, William Jennings Bryan and his uh, uh, very famous cross of gold speech. So he was, uh, you know, he was a presidential candidate who thought that the, uh, the gold standard was like a, a religious fetish. You know, that's why he called it the cross of gold. And, and uh, he thought that it was terrible that people were so beholden uh, to the point of worshipful, almost religious sentiment towards the gold standard. He thought that was a terrible thing. So he really linked uh, the, the connect, he really identified the connection between uh, some religious sentiments and the monetary system. But certainly, you know, one thing that's a little more mundane is rules against interest. I mean, uh, there is both biblical and Quranic uh, text that prohibits the charging of interest on a loan. And, you know, in the Middle Ages, the Medici bankers wrestled with this, with the, you know, the Catholic prohibition on usury. But you see usury laws on the books in many, many states. And so there's always been a kind of religiously based disquiet about the charging of interest on a loan. And, you know, the prohibition was complete when it comes to, you know, the Middle Ages. Uh, and, but if you look at sort of secular um, uh, usury laws, they usually set interest rate caps. But that's a religious framing for uh, a kind of a pervasive disquiet about what it means to be a debtor uh, and, the, and the, the belief that being a debtor is to be disadvantaged. It, it's to be... Uh, beholden to someone else. It's a bad thing, uh, 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 bad position to be in. And so usury laws were a way of saying, you know, to lenders, well, you know, you shouldn't, it, it's wrong to take advantage of, of debtors. It's wrong to charge interest on them, or it's wrong to charge interest rates that are so high that we would call them usurious. So I think there's many, many places where you see religious uh, sentiments and a kind of religious understanding um, you know, creeping into how the credit system has operated. 
What about the political implications in the way in which in Europe in particular and in the United States, much anti-Semitism is rooted in the association of Jews and, and the banking industry? Did that happen or has that happened in America too? Have some of the, the people most opposed to the idea of credit, have they associated it with particular religious or ethnic groups like the Jews, the European Jews? I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. That is an association that's used to stigmatize banking, but also to stigmatize the Jews. There's sort of a, you know, the <clears throat> the connection that's drawn between uh, Jews as a as an ethnic religious group in banking or finance. That's a that's a, a, a connection with deep roots in, uh, you know, kind of European sensibilities, as you said. It, it, it's something that went on in Europe that did carry over uh, into the United States. You know, and you can still see there's some imagery, uh, you know, when people are uh, um, bemoaning the American, current American economy, there are still people who will, you know, point out that all of these, uh, you know, top economic decision makers and bankers are Jewish, you know, as if that that were a an important thing to point out. And, and so there's still, uh, among certain audiences, uh, in American politics, that the association of Jews with banking still resonates uh, to the to the detriment of both. Um, so that that is an old hoary uh, uh, um, association um, that that you know the political traction of which kind of waxes and wanes. But it's it's uh, it's not a dead horse. It's a it's a thing that comes back every once in a while uh, when it suits somebody's political purposes. How has the economy of promise been shaped or changed by the history of neoliberalism? We've done a number of shows on neoliberalism. We did one with the prominent progressive radio personality, Tom Hartman, who has his short history of uh, neoliberalism out. Another um, with Gary Gerstle, another his economic historian about what exactly neoliberalism is. He's written a book, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order. How does um, your economy of promise intersect with, as Gerskel put it, the rise and fall of neoliberalism? Well, one of the things that has historically been true of finance uh, in America is that it's a regulated sector. You know, uh, in the early uh, years, you know, not just anyone could set up a bank. A bank was, uh, you know, to set up a bank was a special privilege uh, bestowed by a state legislature. And so people were encumbered with various obligations in order to set up a bank. So banking was regulated. We have the New Deal framework that dealt with the financial crisis of the uh, 1930s, partly by regulating banks, you know, including things like deposit insurance, but lots of other, other stuff going on. So I see the period of the rise of neoliberalism, which is uh, something that happened, you know, at the end of the 20th century as being associated with and as justifying a lot of the deregulatory moves that started to happen where people began to dismantle um, the, the, uh, the New Deal framework and some of the regulations. And the ideas of neo neoliberalism provided a very powerful justification uh, for a lot of those moves. Uh, you know, the basic idea was that efficient markets are good for society and we'll all benefit in the long run if we, if we uh, can, can unleash those market forces and uh, when it comes to risk management, 
uh, a, a liberalized uh, capital market means that the uh, you know, risk will be appropriately priced and it will migrate into the hands of those best able to ascertain and manage it, right? So lots of arguments that basically said, you know, as, as finance was deregulated, as financial innovations uh, happened, as things really heated up on Wall Street and with all the financial engineering and all the securitization, all of that, and you know, this is the era of Alan Greenspan, all of that was said, you know, these are people, these are very smart people and they know what they're doing and it's gonna be, you know, create more uh, efficient intermediation between um, uh, savers and borrowers. So let's just let them at it. And then along came 2008 and the global financial crisis. And there was, I think, a bit of a realization that, you know, maybe, maybe we'd gone a little too far in the direction of, of deregulation and maybe we'd shown a little too much confidence in these, uh, you know, rational uh, quants and 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 uh, financiers, uh, that they were going to be able to manage their business well, uh, and and as you know, 2008, uh, you know, required a massive bailout. So a lot of losses were socialized, and and there were some regulatory changes made. But I would say, you know, in in general, neoliberalism is plays an important role uh, in setting the stage for a lot of what happened in the economy of promises. Uh, at the end of the uh, t- uh, of 20th century and into the early 21st century. Final question, Bruce. Um, how has the internet and the, the the promise, which is often too good to be true, of credit on the internet, and particularly crypto, how how has that changed your uh, economy of promises, trust, power, and credit in America? Is it the final chapter? of the same story or is it a new story? Um, well, it is a very important story. So I would say there's a lot going on in that, in that space that we, that I want to pay attention to and that we should all pay attention to. Um, I think that uh, the availability of data, the shift of so much of, of commerce and social life, in fact, onto the internet, onto platforms that mediate, you know, Uh, so much of what we do, all of this has created uh, multiple fire hoses of information. And because uh, a credit economy depends so much on on information, there are many, many opportunities for people in fintech, but also some of the more traditional uh, financial institutions, they realize that there are lots of opportunities for them to harvest all all that data that is being created uh, and and to use it uh, to you know improve their credit decision making uh, 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 systems or to uh, to take them and to generalize them uh, to apply them to yeah other I mean it's activities. not surprising that all the, these big data companies whether they're Google or Facebook or Amazon or Apple they're all itching to get into fintech one way or the other they are all they are as you suggest as big data companies are by definition um uh, financial companies mm-hmm. so if information is the lifeblood of finance and that's been true forever but now there's more information and it's more pervasive and it can be analyzed faster uh and it can be analyzed in ways that are beyond human comprehension as you know we get into machine learning and and, and some of the fancy artificial intelligence stuff. So I think, uh, you know, the challenge for us, and, and by us, I mean, for society, for, you know, people who are interested in policy, who are interested in what's going on, 
is how do we uh, how do we manage that new world of information in a way that's uh, socially constructive? Uh, because you know there's clearly a lot of money to be made, um, but that is you know profitability means some private set of interests are being served because they're making money. Um, but there's an issue of of uh, is a social interest being served, and um, you know I think that that. Uh, you know, we, we have a, we face problems with, you know, data ownership. Who, who owns that data? Um, uh, what sort of privacy rules do we want to put in place? Um, should, you know, data be allowed to in any application or do we want to put restrictions on that? There's a whole set of questions that I think are falling on our heads very, very soon, very, very quickly. You're an academic, Bruce. I know you're not really in the business of making promises of your own or, or policy suggestions. But do you want to end with any policy suggestions? You've spent a lot of time looking at the economy of promises. Anything in particular that you think we as individuals or as voters or citizens need to keep our eyes on in the 2020s when it comes to the economy of promise? I Yes, I do. Um, and and I, I, I make my own promises, you know, so I am a, a, a debtor. Uh, I've borrowed money and I, I participate in the credit economy. I don't, I don't survive. Join the crowd. Who hasn't? It's hard exactly. to imagine anyone who hasn't. Absolutely. So this is, we're all implicated in this, but I would say as a kind of a, 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 a warning going forward, I think that the rules that govern data usage uh, and the regulations that, that uh, need to be applied to big tech firms, I think that's a thing where it would be very easy, uh, you know, to to uh, let you know these are very powerful economic actors. They've got tons of money, massive market capitalizations. Uh, I, I sorry to say, but you know, American politicians are are quite influenced by who donates money and so forth. I think as a public, we need to be mobilized and we need to pay attention to those privacy rules and those uh, uh, the obligations that that the big tech firms have to society uh, to kind of uh, restrain and temper uh, the usage uh, that, that happens on all this data that they're uh, harvesting and appropriating for, for private use. Good stuff, Bruce. Well, great that uh, the book is out now, The Economy of Promises, Trust, Power, and Credit in America by Bruce G. Carruthers. Uh, Bruce, what else are you reading in addition to all your academic papers and analysis of credit? Well, uh, I have a, you know, as you know, credit is a lot about the future. And so I'm, I've mm. got a new project going on the future, uh, but the, it's shifting away from credit and to climate change. And so what I'm mm. doing is learning about institutions, social, actual social organizations that have been effective in considering long-term interests. So do we have examples of, of social institutions that actually can look 100, 200 years down the line and be mindful of what could happen in that kind uh, of a the Long future. Now Foundation is a is a local organization of mine in San Francisco, very much focused on this. So what I've read is about early modern forestry because it turns out that early modern uh, monarchies were very good and they they had a strategic resource that required very forward looking planning. And that strategic resource was timber. They all had wooden ships. And in order to have the oak trees that you need to build a wooden battleship, you need to plant them and let them grow for two or 300 years. 
And so the forestry managers were basically saying, how are we going to ensure there's an adequate supply of oak 300 years into the future? And it worked. Uh, so I've read a wonderful book uh, by a, a, a sort of environmental historian named Carl Appun that's all about uh, early modern uh, forestry practices. So I'm, I'm trying to pursue this project by thinking about concrete examples of success.